Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 136, recorded August 24th, 2013. So today we'll do our 71st 90s episode and we're covering Deep Space Nine issues 22 through 24. And we're starting out with a first comic named Star Trek Deep Space Mine. Ah, spoiler. I was going to do that. Oh, sorry. Um... (laughs) But it, like, it's so close to the name of the, the series that you just mentioned. I just had to mention it. Right, right. Just had to do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, so the first one's a one-off, and then we're going to start up a three-part trilogy that they call the Lost Orb Trilogy for the last two issues. Right. And unfortunately, we just read the first two, and with the big payoff is going to have to come in a, a different episode. Right, so we will be doing that in episode 139. You know, schedule it out. There you go. Download it the second week of October. Oh, give, boy. Me, give you something to look forward to there. You've got the schedule in front of you, obviously. Very oh, good. no, just shooting from the hip. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have it all memorized. Yeah, so yeah, so you'll have to wait a little bit to get to the conclusion, but not too long. Just, what, three episodes? Yeah. So, anyways, uh, I don't really have any housekeeping stuff, so I'm ready to jump in if you are. Let's do it. As Ken mentioned, issue 22 came out in May of 1995 and is entitled Deep Space Mine. It is written by Dan Mishkin. Art and lettering is done by Terry Pallett. Color designer is Mike Hilleman. Color separations is Jennifer Schellinger. Assistant editor is Clarissa Manasala, and the editor is Mark Pancia. The cover that starts us off is a scene in Quark's bar. Quark is in the foreground, looking smug with his arms crossed his chest. Behind him, we see Dax in a very skimpy waitress outfit, and she's serving drinks. Sisko and Kira are behind the bar, and Sisko is dressed as a bartender. And then we see O'Brien busily working on a conduit, and he also is not in his normal uniform. So it's a uh, very odd scene. So the story starts off and continues that odd scene with Quark recording his station log. And he's talking about how everything is normal, and as it should be. He is in command while Dax and Sisko are in their rightful places working at the bar. Cisco is seen cleaning glasses and pouring drinks like he belongs there. So to help clarify the reader as to what's going on, Odo starts a conversation with Cisco and the explanation is given. Everybody has switched places so that Quark will seem to be in charge of the station when some visitors from the Gamma Quadrant arrive. As if on cue, Dax, who is not wearing the skimpy outfit from the cover but still working at the bar, whispers to Cisco that the ship has arrived. 
Commander Quirk arrives at the airlock to greet the visitors. They turn out to be two hulking aliens that are perhaps twice as tall as Quirk is as, as Quirk is himself. As they enter the station, a third person exits the ship, and it's none other than the Grand Nagus himself. The ruse is then fleshed out even further. So the aliens come from a species who have created a device that can shatter worlds. These two aliens were in charge of the ship that's holding the device. And the Nagus has been able to talk the two into selling it to the Alpha Quadrant and not the Dominion. But it requires them to think that the Ferengi are the dominant species of the Alpha Quadrant. Dax's scans of the ship cannot find any evidence of a device with the magnitude of power needed to crack a planet. But they've all seen evidence of it working when a nearby moon was destroyed recently. A nearby moon uh, to the aliens' homeworld. Another set of aliens arrive from the Gamma Quadrant, and they demand the return of the device. As the haggling continues, Cork puts an end to everything by just giving up. He says that he knows the device is not real, and that the whole bidding war is a scam. He assumes that the moon was destroyed by natural disaster, and that the aliens cooked up the superweapon idea to keep the Dominion at bay. Caught in their ruse, the aliens depart, and the status quo returns to the station. The end. Oh, that wacky quark. Turns out to be the big brain guy in the end. Right. I like how he even one-ups the Nagus and Cisco and everybody. Yeah, well, if there's one thing quark should be able to do is to be able to spot a scam. Right. It's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's hard to to scam a scammer. And he is indeed a scammer. He is. So, I did not really like this issue. No. The whole idea that you would have to pretend that he's in charge of the station and that it would work just did not. <laughs> that would that the ruse would work. Right. Well, it turns out these two aliens are pretty dumb. Big lugs. Right. So. But there's there's still other people on the station, and other people are going to remember Quark as being the bartender and oh. Cisco as being the commander. So I really find it hard to believe that they could sit in a bar, mingle in with these aliens. They were trying to have sex with some of them, so it's not like they were completely sheltered from the other people. And everybody was in on the joke, or everybody was in like on it. the news. Sounds like it. Just but, then, but then O'Brien makes his mistake. Uh, what did he do? He gave a status report to Cisco and not Quark? When the other ship was coming. Did they say Commander... I think she actually... She or he originally said Commander Cisco, maybe even? And uh, then they switched it. Oh, uh, Commander, I meant Quark! Anyway. Right, right. It was just a light, airy, wacky, Ferengi humor story and right. they had to do so much to force that scenario yeah i wasn't too crazy about it right i mean it wasn't wasn't the worst one we've read but no there 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 are worse ones where the uh, frangies come to the forefront for humorous uh, effect right and and i like the idea of the aliens scamming them i, I mm -hmm. thought that was actually kind of interesting you know their moon just happens to explode so then uh yeah, we did that. And we'll do it to you too if you don't stay away from us. I 
really thought that was an interesting idea. I just didn't buy the overarching everybody has to switch roles. Yeah. Oh, well, they didn't ask me. <laughs> As they should have. What's wrong with them? So what would you think of the, the ship's design, the, the alien ship? So it's kind of like two cylinders kind of connected. Yeah, it's it's a tin can. It's it, it's two tin cans, a big one and a small one, connected. Right. Yeah, I thought it was really basic. But knowing what you know of the, these aliens, that they're not the smartest species Cookies. in, in, in exactly. the universe, uh, I kind of like the simple design for simple people. Exactly. And, of course, that being part of the clue that says to Quark, these guys are too dumb to create something like that, <laughs> a weapon like that. So, yeah, I cut it out of the synopsis, but they they are really shocked about the you know the replicator, and you know the holodeck seems kind of foreign to them. So uh, there there was many clues throughout the issue where simple, basic technology seems like magic to them almost. Right. But they do like the women's. Oh, they do, especially the ones that their shirts stop at a certain distance downward so the bottoms pop out the underboob the underboob exactly so i didn't realize that about halfway through it dax does wear the uniform that she was wearing on the cover she does and why because as you pointed out she's got a very covering outfit a black and white outfit and she is the barmaid person and then for no, I don't remember there being a reason for it. Suddenly she's in a, uh, she's in the fetching outfit. Is that is that the exact fetching outfit she was in in the cover? Uh, looks pretty like close. It. Yeah, no, it looks exactly like it. Yeah. So what the heck? And by the way, she looks like some kind of cat girl or something. Where? On the cover, her yeah. face, where she's got kind of like a little kind of sort of half smile or something. And it doesn't right. really look like Terry. Terry Farrell, is that her name? Right. But she almost looks like some kind of cat girl or something. Hmm. I just get that impression, maybe from the little cleft underneath her nose and between right. her, and her upper lip. I don't know. She looks like some kind of cat woman. <laughs> so a little, not the most accurate drawing of Terry Farrell I've ever seen, but a fetching outfit. Right. I mean, that's on par with the slave lay outfit. We should see oh. more cosplay of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Could you see her getting back into that for the new J.J. Abrams Star Wars movie? I don't think so. <laughs> Have you ever... You've been to Star... Or not Star Trek conventions, but um, just sci-fi Science conventions. Fiction. I have been. It's always surprising on how many people show up as Slave Leia. That is like <laughs> a staple. And some people really shouldn't. Right. But I just wonder if it was that popular before Friends, that Friends episode where, you know, that was Ross's dream. And then now so who, it's just like... I, I never saw that. So who who was in the Slave Leia outfit? Um, Jennifer Aniston. Ah. Because she finds out that that's Ross's fantasy, that she would wear the Slave Leia outfit. Oh. <laughs> never saw the episode. So, no, it did not have much effect on me, but I don't go to <laughs> conventions in that outfit. So, uh, hmm. <laughs> no, I, I think that is a cultural icon beyond uh, the Friends series. Although I'm sure that helped. Right. 
it's okay. it's an iconic it vision. It's an iconic vision. Right. That works. It was a good outfit. It's a good outfit. I don't think I've ever seen Carrie Fisher in anything quite so fetching. Anyway, I have very few comments on this issue. Do you and have any you more? Have, no. I mean, basically, you you mentioned a few. I mentioned a few. The Catgirl look on the cover. And other than that, no. Okay. Well, I have uh, just one more, maybe two more comments. Uh, and they both revolve around advertisements. So okay. on the back of the front cover there is an advertisement for Star Trek Deep Space Nine 25th anniversary issue and then there's a little bar at the bottom that says join us in celebrating the 25th anniversary issue of Star Trek Deep Space Nine what yes. does that mean in 1995 I don't know because do the <laughs> subtraction and that's 1970 and did so Deep what Space started? Nine come out in 1970? Hell no. Did anything come out in 1970? Not that I'm aware of. Well, when did the comic series start? Uh, Star Trek, you know, the Saturday morning cartoon thing. That ha- that happened. No, so that Star was... Trek ended in, what, 69? 66, 69? Yeah. Animated then... series would have been like 72, 74. Okay, so there was a few years in between. Okay. Yeah. So I... <laughs> it makes no sense. Right. I mean, it is the 25th issue. They got that right, but I don't understand what the anniversary is. And they do stick the anniversary. Oh, they, they did. They, they stick the word <laughs> anniversary in between 25th and issue. Well, yeah, that's it. That's what they're talking about. Because we're in issue 24. Issue 25 is going to be the next one. Right. But that's not anniversary. Anniversary huh. Anniversary implies time, doesn't it? Right. And there's nothing. There's no time involved in this. It is the okay. 25th issue. It could be the second anniversary, right? So if they published one a month, issue 24 would come out on the 25th month, the the two year anniversary of the series. But they they're not saying that. They're saying 25th anniversary issue. Issue. It's the issue. So oh, I I was very perplexed because you know then I was thinking, oh, it's the 25th anniversary of Star Trek in general, but. That would have been... Math doesn't work out, right? 92 or 93. Right. Anyways. So I think there was plenty of things that have been talked about in Star Trek in the past. 25th, 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 25th. And I think they're just playing off of that. Uh, so it's a joke on us? Uh, well, it's a joke on us, right. It's see how many people we can get talking about it. Just yeah, exactly. Maybe people, people won't notice, like I didn't, where it says, Issue. Okay. Anyway. All right, and then uh, the <clears throat> the last page they have an advertisement for the upcoming Mark Leonard authored Star Trek Deep Space Nine issue. Yeah, and they have, even have a picture of Mark Leonard and everything. Right. So I like that they were advertising that. Don't remember when we're going to review that one, but uh, maybe that'll come up soon. Right. So he wrote one, and then the guy who played Nog, which I forgot his name, he he wrote one as part of their celebrity series. Mm-hmm. So I I always thought Mark Leonard was a weird choice because you know he was never in Deep Space Nine, <laughs> but uh, he definitely is a staple in Star Trek. So oh, he is, and apparently he has enough interest in in writing a story because right. again, this is not a natural fit. 
So he must have been a very interested and and a bit of a writer. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to reading that one. I never I've never read it. Yeah. Not all actors are writers. Cool. All right, that's it for me. Okay, part one of the trilogy is in issue number 23, The Secret of the Lost Orb. Subtitle, The Search, is the title of the issue. May 1995 is published date. Dan Mishkin is the writer. Penciler, Leonard Kirk. Inker is Aubrey Bradford. Scott Reed and Larry Welch. Letterer, Roxanne Starr. Color design by Mike Heileman. Interior color by Salvador Mancha and the Wolf Pack. Assistant editor, Clarissa Manasala. Editor, Mark Panacea. The cover features the interior of Quarks, where a large, ill-tempered Nausicaan is smashing a bar table to bits, sending the Bajoran, who is sitting at the table, flying backwards. Major Kira is also backing away from the splintering table, while Quark looks on, screaming as he sees profits flying out the window due to what he estimates this fight will cost him in property damage. In the upper left corner is text telling us this is part one of the Secret of the Lost Orb trilogy. Once each century a gift from the prophets descends to Bajor from the wormhole. The orbs are guideposts for divining an uncertain future and settling uncertain souls. Gifts from the heavens indeed. However, one century no orb descended from the heavens. Was it lost? Was it stolen? Or was it never sent at all? Only the prophets themselves know for sure, says Vedic Solon to Major Kira Norris. Quark says the lost orb is a lot of hooey. If it existed, he would have heard something substantial about it. Legendary missing things tend to be valuable, and if there is one thing he knows, it is valuable things. Kira says during the occupation she heard many stories about the lost orb. How, if it could be found, it would bring the occupation to an end. As Vedic Solon asks to hear more about the stories, he and Kira are blown backwards by the crashing blow to their table in Quarks. A huge Nausicaan wielding a heavy metal mace destroys the table. He is after the Vedic, but the Nausicaan is calling him Croak It and says he trusted the Vedic, but was betrayed. They both pull knives out and start a nasty fight. For a religious man, the Vedic was no pushover. Finally, he gets an opening, grabs the Nausicaan's knife out of his own belt, and plunges it deeply into the much larger Nausicaan's chest. He says he has no hesitation in killing someone who would surely kill him. Odo says he has no hesitation about arresting the Vedic. From the Vedic's detention cell, Sisko tells the Vedic he is actually a human named Lane Crockett. What is he doing at the station, they ask. Crockett says he has nothing to hide. As he told Major Kira, he is at DS9 to learn the secret of the lost orb. Sisko pulls out a fancy-looking artifact called an Iconian religious fetish that they found in Crockett's ship. No doubt the item the Nausicaan tried to kill him over. Crockett says he is an honest antiquities trader, and he paid a fair price for that item. In fact, if they want to check his credentials, they can contact Kai Wynn for a reference. 
Kira is shocked that the Kai would have anything to do with this shyster. Crockett explains that he is actively searching for the lost orb at the behest of the Kai. When he brought her evidence that the orb was actually in the possession of a Bajoran religious order and has been for centuries, the Kai was more than interested in securing his services. The constable and Sisko believed his story given the intrigues they have witnessed between the various Bajoran religious factions. Kira goes to contact the Kai and confirm Crockett's assertions. After confirming he is working for the Kai, they release him from his cell and tell him to leave the station. Crockett does so and flies his ship to Bajor, specifically to a religious site where he intends to gain an audience with the head of their order. The member of the order that meets him tells him it would be quite impossible for him to see the head of their order. Crockett says he is willing to undergo any ritual to do anything to see the Grand Poobah himself. Crockett turns and we see he is dressed in a Starfleet dress uniform. Another masquerade. Meanwhile in Sisko's office, he and Kira are being briefed on what Odo has found out about Crockett, which is really not all that much. He has been careful and covered his tracks well over the years. He really does not have a record. Sisko says that is the price of having a free society rather than a police state like the Cardassians run. Kira is unhappy about the Kai and her latest grab for power. Meanwhile, on Bajor, Crockett is climbing a steep mountain face with the female monk to the religious order's most isolated monastery. He must overcome a matrix of laser beams that guard the entrance, but he makes it, barely. He is finally inside and speaking to the leader of the religious order. The leader asks how much he knows, so Crockett tells him quite a bit. The orb the order has had in their possession for centuries has told them different things than other orbs. It told them of warfare and weapons. It taught them how to fight and they became the seeds of the rebellion that eventually drove the Cardassians off Bajor. Why did this orb tell them different things from the other orbs? Perhaps this order asked different questions, the leader conjectures. The leader knows Crockett is not from the Federation, but he is allowed to see the lost orb anyway. When Crockett gets close enough, he sets off a sound weapon that significantly incapacitates the monks, and he beams away back to the ship with the orb. Quickly, he leaves Bajor and heads for the Wormhole. Kai Wynn contacts DS9 and tells Sisko that Crockett must be stopped. The orb must be returned to the monks. Sisko dispatches Dax and O'Brien in a runabout to bring Crockett back. When they get to the other side of the wormhole, the runabout is fired upon by multiple larger ships that are covering Crockett's escape. The runabout is able to deal some damage to the larger attackers, but the hits they took early in the fight is threatening a life support failure. They head back to DS9. Back on the station, Kai Wynn informs Sisko and his command staff that she has found out from one of Crockett's confederates who he is working for a Gamma Quadrant race who has also received a lost orb, as on Bajor. As on Bajor, the orb touched off a religion, but a mirror religion based on war and violence, not peace. They cannot be allowed to get their hands on the power of a second orb. 
Kira promises to the Kai that they will get the orb back. To be continued. So how many orbs were missing? It gets very convoluted, and it doesn't get any better <laughs> in the later <laughs> issues. They said one year, no orb came. Right. Right? So at the beginning, they made it sound like one orb. But then we find out, oh, there's two orbs somehow. And they appear to be evil orbs. Well, they're basically... Well, we don't know what the other orb... Well, she did say that the uh, other society has a different take on the prophets than what Bajor does, right? Or is that exactly issue? No, she does. Yeah, Yeah, they say that. So it's like a mirror orb where the normal orbs, of which there must be many over right. the years, over the centuries, spoke of peace and getting along together and that kind of stuff. Right. This other missing orb turns out to be an orb of war, which comes in handy, apparently, during the occupation. Right. But it's just weird that there's two of them. One missing, there's only one missing, yet there's two, and they both preach the same thing. So Exactly. I it, was confused. Well... And for me, the confusion continues into the next issue as we find out <laughs> as we find out that basically the whole question of the number of orbs and all that kind of stuff is really just morphing as they go to suit the needs of the storyline. Right. And I really liked the idea of an orb missing from Bajor and come mm-hmm. to find out it ended up just going to the other side of the wormhole and another society has picked it up and you know has the same you know they have the same you know quote unquote gods but they've kind of taken a different slant on it that's an interesting concept oh i think so too i mean and, why why should the advanced aliens have been giving these orbs to the alpha quadrant well shouldn't they be giving you know the same thing to the other side of the wormhole you know, I don't right. Know. I mean, why should only the Alpha Quadrant get them? Agreed. So I thought that was I thought that was a cool idea, but it becomes a little muddied when you try to figure out well, which which orb are we talking about? Right, right. Or so just why how, many, how many there are? Exactly. And Missing. so why? Right. Yeah. Sorry. And so, why did the Gamma Quadrant get supposedly only one, and why was it an evil one? Right. Well, it's not really evil, it's just that they took a different slant on what it was preaching. Hmm, I think it was preaching something totally different. Really? And and I know that the, the Bajoran religious order leader had said something about, maybe we ask different questions. You know, why, why was the message different from the one that they had that taught them how to fight and and form the resistance? And then I know the, the leader said, maybe we ask different questions. So that is kind of interesting that, again, the beauties in the eye of the beholder or what you get out of something like an orb ends up being maybe somehow based on you and what you expect or something. I don't know. Interesting Interesting possibility, but I still think they're evil. Okay. Evil. Evil. Like the Book of the Dead. Evil. Well, the Book of the Dead truly is evil. That is. There's, that, there, there, that, I'll that's, agree there. That's not even up for debate. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, anyways. Okay. Um, yeah. So I thought it was interesting how in the final panel of the issue, and I didn't mention this necessarily, but it's in the it's in the comic if you read it. It's interesting how in the final panel, it's Kira that makes the pledge to the Kai, while basically Cisco and the other command staff that are standing there are just like saying nothing. Right. Okay, Kira. I, I was thinking at first, it's like, wow, you're uh, you're speaking for everybody pretty quick there, second in command. Well, that that's true to her nature, though. Yeah. But then we see what happens in the next issue. So she's not speaking for everybody. Right. And I do like that maybe she, not only is she, you know, very religious, and that having one of your holy things stolen would be cause to be agitated, but... Oh, yeah. There's also the... You know, the other motivation where Crockett basically tricked her, and yes. she does not like to be tricked. No. So it's kind of like a, a pride thing, too. Yeah. And so. and I bet when he was playing the Vedic that she might have even been enjoying his company. Right. Which would also make it a little more unhappy with the situation when it was exposed that he was a swindler. Right. Exactly. I liked it. I like her motivations that they could go one of two ways, and you don't really know is she doing it for the right reason, meaning you know her religion, or is she really just being petty and doesn't like to have, doesn't like to be tricked. I thought it was well done mm-hmm. and ambiguous, and it'll be ambiguous at the next issue too. Yeah, and I think probably she had both motivations, and they just oh. happen to coincide. <laughs> Yeah, but when when the chips are down, which one is she gonna which one is she going to follow through with? I don't know. We'll see. Let's just keep going. Well, in both cases, she wants to get the orb back, so to drive her for both. Uh, let's see. So at this point in the issue, I was wondering myself, what's Crockett's motivation getting his hands on that orb? I mean, greed might be out there, but he's doing an awful lot of very risky things. You know, trying to get through those laser beams at the monastery. I mean, it reminded me of, you know, one of those Tom Cruise Mission Impossible things, but I had the impression that those things, rather than just setting off an alarm, would actually fry you. Right. So that, you know, he's climbing up the mountain face, he's lying to everybody, which could be second nature to this guy. He's potentially going to get fried. It's like, if if greed is your, your main motivator, there's going to be a limit to how far you're going to go. And this guy seems to be willing to do anything, right? And I just wonder and, what it, what all the what what all whether there was more motivation going on here than just profit. I think it's just profit. He's uh, just in it for the money. Yeah, and and I thought maybe something else would come out in the in the in the later issues, but just to give not to be a spoiler, but nah, no new motivation comes out in the second issue. Right, but we still got another one. Yeah. So, did did you like that, you know, you walk into the temple and you have these little mirrored panels that you put on your hands and then that's how you reflect the beams that are going to slice you up? I think it's a little ridiculous, but it's also, <laughs> it's 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 kind of cool, but kind of ridiculous. Right, and, and looking at those two panels of him going through it, I just don't see how he could have gotten through it. Exactly. There's too many of them. They're just too close to each other. Right. And as soon as he moves his, you know, right hand, you know, to, to you know, it's on page 13 if you have the book in front of you. 
he has a beam going underneath his armpit, mm-hmm. and his arm is outstretched, and he's holding back a beam that would slice him if he was there. But how is he going to be able to move his arm so that he can get past the one that's underneath his armpit and keep the one that's trying to shoot at him from slicing him? It's just right. It's a very cool visual for one frame, but if it was a movie or a right. TV show, you just you have to see what happens in the next frame and the next frame and the next frame of film, and I don't see how you could have done it. Oh. Yeah, They would have to – fewer beams or the trajectories would have to be different. Or you so. just do something silly where somebody just, you know, like jumps through them, somersaults and stuff, obviously. Yeah. There's like no way ninja. you could have I think you could do that. <laughs> but that's how they usually get away with it in, in those like Mission Impossible movies. Just do a right. couple somersaults, a roll, flip in the air, boom. You somehow didn't hit any of them. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, they're on page 12. I wasn't going to mention this, but since we're here, they're climbing up the rock, and he's following <clears> the girl. <throat> mm-hmm. And they're wearing very loose robes. Yes. So is she wearing pants? Because I think... Yeah, <laughs> he he get a good view. I must say that. And they kind of show him like looking straight up, and she's sitting there. Her 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 robe is flowing, so it's obviously wide open at the bottom. Ah. Uh-huh. And I'm like, I hope she's wearing pants because that makes him look like a pervert. You know, Donovan, I did not even notice that at all. But so, you are quite right. What does that so, say about you, my friend? Yeah, let's not talk about that. <laughs> It was just a weird picture. You notice things. You're observant. It was a weird picture. That's what it says about you, buddy. So You're I observant. was. So you knew straight from the bat that he wasn't. He wasn't uh, really Starfleet. Because I, I. Oh, wasn't, you were. You were questioning. I was. Well, I. You know, I. I will not say that it did not occur to me as a possibility. Because it gets back to the question I had earlier. He seems to be taking an awful lot of risks for somebody that is just a profiteer. Unless it's like, uh, ooh, I'm an adventurer and I love the risk as well as the profit. If he actually did turn out to be Starfleet and he's just undercover, then that would be the extra motivation for him to take all these risks. But in... There's no, there's no indication of that in the second issue, but of course there is exactly. a third. Right. It wasn't it, it wasn't until the second issue that I then changed my tune and yeah. that maybe he really is a bad guy and not some sort of covert Section Thirty One guy. But again, the second issue does not absolutely say that that isn't possible. True. True. Right. Okay. All right. Let's see, is there anything else? Uh, I thought Crockett's fight with the Nausicaan went much better than Picard's. <laughs> they didn't get a knife in his back. Exactly. Of course, there was only one. But he was a biggin. Yep. My, my last comment has nothing to do with Nausicaan, so if you were going to talk about that, let's finish that one off. Um, I have one last comment also, but it has nothing to do with Nausicaan, so go ahead. It's the alien ship design. I really liked the like triangular wings, mm-hmm. right? So it's like there's a little a ball which would be like your engineering section type thing, two nacelles that come off the top, and then they actually fold down and meet in the bottom to make like a, a triangle, and right. then your phaser emitter is in that 
that bottom uh, the bottom corner of that triangle. It, I thought it was a really interesting design of a ship. Don't really see how it would land. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's very practical. But of it is, space it is unique. Well, exactly right. Well, as long but, as it never not, needs but what's to land? the point? I mean, uh, okay, so I give it I give it big props for uniqueness. Because mm-hmm. how t- how many times do the Star Trek ships? Yeah, there's there's usually just X number of different configurations that they they tweak here and there for different you know for for different alien races and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I do give props to uniqueness. I just don't see the point. I mean, from an engineering standpoint. The point's there on the bottom where the phaser emitter is. The point of the angle. <laughs> you know what I mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> I just thought it was a cool design, and I, I really liked it. it. It is high points for uniqueness and coolness. Just from right. a practical standpoint, uh, doesn't look that practical. But And where are the engines, by the way? Yeah, I don't know if the engine is, or the like nacelle is also where the phaser emitter comes from, or yeah. or if it's actually in the little uh, you know little ball area, which I assume is the cockpit. Right. It reminds me of like you know a Tie Fighter type thing from Star Wars, but instead of having mm. just two panels and a ball in the middle, the right. panels actually kind of curve in and make a triangle with with still the ball in the middle. Right. I mean, what it kind of reminds me of is a bird's wings on the ultimate down flap. Right, right. So the 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 main oval kind of thing where the people are in is like like the body of the bird. Right. And then how it's coming up on an angle away from the orb on the top, and then mm-hmm. outward, and then down into the point. It kind of reminds me of the downstroke of a bird. But yeah, I totally see that. And if that's the only thing in the bottom part is the phase cannon or whatever kind of energy beam that thing is, it seems like a waste of space. That or else they just have a really powerful weapon or something. I don't know. Right. Because it's kind of like having uh, its own little like engineering system or section there at the bottom, but the only thing that appears to come out of it is the weapon. Right. It does make for a good target, though. If you want to take out their weapons, it's really easy to find. <laughs> right. Yep. yep. I don't know what those little spheres. There's like four red spheres, one, two yeah. on each wing. So maybe that's somehow the nacelle. Maybe it, like, creates the warp bubble from those two spheres on each side. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. They, they, I, they, I, they're I, very pronounced, and they are able to take one out. Right. And it sounds shree you. When you do. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Anyways, I, I liked it. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. I usually don't talk about the ships, but that one I really got into. Very, what was your, very good. What, okay, so my last comment, comment also was on a ship. So they showed Defiant at the station. Mm-hmm. Was there a reason they didn't take Defiant out when they went after Crockett? Or was it quicker to grab a runabout? Is that... So why do they take a runabout? I don't know. I mean, Good when point. you've got the Defiant. So. And did uh, it actually show the Defiant docked anywhere? Because I don't remember seeing it in this issue. Well, they definitely show it at the very beginning. But that's... Or was that the... No, they show it at the very beginning. But was that part of the ad? Not no, that's, sure. That's the ad. That's the 25th anniversary issue. Right. 
But at this point in the development of the storyline, they did have the Defiant. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, they used the Defiant in the last issue, right? Uh, no. But they may next issue. Well, okay. Not. Uh, I guess I meant the issues that we reviewed last time that were Deep Space Nine. Right. So, yes. I mean, so in from a time frame standpoint, they've they're not pre-defiant. No, they're not. And everybody's there on the ship, at least the main characters. So some other nobody could have taken the defiant out, but odds are the defiant was there. They probably just needed a ship that could not take those little scout ships, and the defiant would have just wiped these three fighters out. So they well, had to have are those fighters. Just... Are those fighters? I didn't know they were fighters. I assume they were fighters, especially in the next issue. Okay. Cool. But, yeah, you're right. Story-wise, they should have done it, but as far as making it believable that they would have to turn tail and run back to the station, yeah, yeah. Uh, runabout makes more sense. Yeah, I agree with that part. I can understand all that from a story standpoint. I just got to say, if the Defiant's there, I'd be taking the Defiant. Right. I'm not going to argue with you. You make a very good point, sir. Yeah. As usual. Okay, that's my last comment. <laughs> All right. Cool. All right, so the next issue, I believe, is written all by the same people. These were coming out bi-weekly. That's why the last two issues were both in May, and the next two issues will be in June, in case you uh, yep. caught that. So let's see. Didn't really pay attention to when you were uh, giving the... The name, so let me look real quick. Uh, Michigan Leonard Kirk. Was John Montgomery the inker in your last one? Uh, let's find out. Aubrey, Bradford, Scott Reed, and Larry Welch. I thought it was very odd they had that many people. All right, so the next issue is issue 24. Came out June of 1995. Malibu was going through a bi-weekly type release schedule, so that's why both of the last two issues were both in May. So, this one is entitled Secret of the Lost Orb Part 2 Acceptable Losses. The writer is Dan Mishkin, penciler is Leonard Kirk, letterers is John Montgomery, letterer is Ronnie Cruz, colorist Mike Hillman, assistant editor is Clarissa Manasala, and the line editor is Mark Pansia. The cover shows Kira and Crockett's face, along with the uh, a picture of the hourglass-shaped glowing orb of the prophet. And behind them is just stars and the wormhole. So it's just a, a headshot cover. So the story starts off with Kira getting ready to depart on her solo mission to the Gamma Quadrant to save the stolen orb. Quark helps her get a freighter to help sell the illusion that she's just a merchant. She arrives at the planet Aresin, and the patrol there informs her to leave. She continues to move the ship closer, insisting that she's just a simple merchant. The aliens then fire on the ship and destroy it. Kira appears on the planet. She was able to beam over just in time. She wears a cloak to mingle in with the aliens. She hears how they have perverted the Prophet's teachings with the one orb that they have from so long ago. They eventually find her, and a chase ensues. Alien troopers mow down dozens of innocent people in order to try to kill her. 
but she's able to elude them and get away. However, she is soon caught by another group of aliens who knock her out with a swift strike of a rifle butt to her head. Back on the station, Odo and Sisko are discussing what's happening, and they hope that Kira can take care of herself. We flash back to the planet. Kira is woken up by having some blue liquid splashed in her face. She at first thinks that these aliens have learned the truth about the Prophet's teachings. But soon she learns that they are just like the others, except that this group wants to overthrow the government so that they can get the spoils of war allocated towards all the people and not just the higher-ups in the government. She tries to escape, but fails. She is about to be killed by the much larger alien when Crockett shows up and he kills the aliens and saves her. This fight scene is, is kind of long. Um, Kira does have the chance of killing one of the aliens, but she chooses to whack it on the head instead. Kira and Crockett then beam back up to his ship. He shows her that he still has the orb that he stole, and they are about to leave when Kira suddenly opens up a communication to Dax and says, Reel us in. With that, the Defiant shimmers from being cloaked and is right in front of them. Dax orders a tractor beam to snatch up Crockett's ship. The aliens, not too happy that the humans are leaving, pair a full squadron of fighters to recapture the orb. To be continued. Hmm. This so, looks like this looks like a big uh, the precipice of a big war here. Right. They want to go back and get all the orbs from the Bajorans. No small task. Right. Not just the one that Crockett stole, gave it to him, stole it back, and somehow has still has it on the ship. Right. Did that make any sense to you? It made no sense. Okay. That made no sense. So they escort him back. He's got the thing. I mean, he's got the he's got the evil orb, the second one. And obviously he's there long enough for Kira to make it to the planet and get on the planet and and all this stuff. And then Crockett still hasn't turned it over yet? These guys are pretty violent guys. I would have thought they would have wanted it immediately. Right. And I thought that, you know, when the alien leader is is talking to all the citizens via the big Jumbotron, Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I thought he said that they had two of them now, but yep. So that made that to me made me think that Crockett already gave it to him. Yep. And then when he shows back up and it's in his ship still, I, I was very confused. So I'm glad I'm not the only one that was confused. <laughs> yeah, it's confusing. I do not blame you. So yeah, I did skip that part in the synopsis that the leader did say that they're going to head to the Alpha Quadrant and take all the orbs. Yeah. All the peaceful ones. Yeah. Okay, well, my first comment is, what a load of horse hockey. So, Kira is going to go after the orb all by herself to a probably hostile planet? What, what, What kind of sense does that make? And I know they said a few things, but in the end, how could Cisco let her? It's, like, ridiculous. Well, technically he didn't, because she's, the Defiant was there the whole time. Well, okay, good point. So the plan apparently the whole time was that the Defiant was going to sit around waiting, hanging out, 
until she gets her hands on it. But I still got to say, sending one person down to try to get it back doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No. No, it does not. And did they know at any time which alien race he was going to sell it to? Because that's where I was scratching that's my head. That's a really good point. I mean, how they – yeah, so how they know exactly what planet to go to? I mean, maybe the monks in that other Bajoran temple, didn't they kind of know that there was another orb that – or no, no, Kai Wen knew mm, that there was another okay. – uh, another race that was kind yeah, of converting so, so, the prophet's messages. Yeah, didn't she say something about talking to an associate of Crocus right, to get information right, or right, something? Right, right, right. Yeah, so, so that must be how they So he had a confederate, which we knew nothing about, who obviously had enough information to know what race it was and where the planet was, or else they wouldn't have been able to find it. Right. Okay, that makes sense. But, yeah. but, this, but this, still. This alien race looks very xenophobic because there's no other races there so I was really having a hard time believing that she, Kira, ever thought that she would be able to just go in and pretend oh, to be a merchant. I completely agree. I mean when she's on the planet and these these critters these these aliens look so different from us. They're really big and their shapes are I mean they've got two arms and two legs and stuff although fewer fingers but they look really different from us. So even with uh, a cape or something on, I mean, how long did she think she was going to be lasting? And right. as we find out, not long. Right. But I mean, but she's mingling in with a huge group of people, so yeah. she wasn't playing it very smart. No. But it turned out in the end that all that had to happen so that she could get into contact with the, quote, rebels who are just as bad as the government. Right, but they didn't really serve anything except to give somebody for Crockett to shoot. <laughs> right. Well, it, at least it delayed. At least it delayed her maybe getting to the hands of the authorities. Right. That might have been more difficult to extract her from than three rebels. Yeah, maybe it was just to show that the not all of the aliens are mindlessly following the government, but right. Even if they don't mindlessly follow the government, they still have the same religious beliefs and goals. Exactly. They just want their cut versus the government just taking all the cuts. Right. So, anyways. Something I did find very interesting about the Aresians is how their whole philosophy of life was such a 180 degree reversal over what the people of the Alpha Quadrant believe. I what thought that the, was really interesting. What the Bajorans believe or what everybody in the Alpha oh, everybody, believes? Everybody in Alpha Quadrant believe. I mean, I don't think it's much different from the humans. I mean, they, they feel it's better to get along with people than to wage war on everybody that comes in your uh, in your field of vision. Right. Um, I mean, these guys are even fighting each other. I mean, the closest things we've got in the Alpha Quadrant are the Klingons. But right. even they have a sense of honor or something. I mean... These guys are just like, and I'm sure they've got their warped version of honor also, but, right. I mean, they're basically just violent, kill everybody, including your own people, if it suits your end. I mean, these guys are not nice, and they're really not nice. I mean, even the Romulans and Klingons seem to have some aspects in common with the rest of the Federation at times. Right, but, right. These yeah, guys don't seem to have much in common philosophically on how you run your life at all. Right. 
Yeah, but unfortunately, I mean, if you look at human history, yeah. we have had a few, you know, cultures that that have thought the same as these guys, you know. Really? You don't think the, you know, the, the ancient? Eh, I was not necessarily thinking the a- Nazis, but even just like ancient times where you know. What civilization? I don't know. I was thinking Romans, but well, I mean, no. they would they would just kill a bunch of people, but they wouldn't necessarily. Oh, I mean, they expanded just to expand, and and conquer all all the known world. Well, Mongolians, yeah, you know, things like that. The the you know we've had that mentality that that you know you, there was yeah. no you but you're either going extreme. to die or become part of our empire or whatever. Well. Yeah, but the Romans also absorbed people too. They wasn't all just by conquest. Right. But you're right. They they did do a lot by conquest uh with with uh, armies. But well, right. So maybe I, this I, is I just find these guys the Yeah, exactly. I find these guys pretty extreme compared to many of the villains we have had included in the Star Trek universe. Sure. So I like that trade ship that Kira's flying around in the beginning. <laughs> I actually kind of liked it. I liked it a lot. I thought it was pretty cool looking. Right. So you want to describe what it looks like? If the Millennium Falcon was symmetrical as opposed to asymmetrical, it would look a little bit like this. Another thing it reminded me of a little bit was the Jupiter 2. I can see that. Yeah. In the movie. In the movie, not the uh, not the TV show. I thought it was a nice design. I liked it. Yeah, it reminded me of a round... Nostromo from Alien, because oh, because of all the, the stuff the sticking ships. out of it. Yeah, of all the stuff sticking out of the front. Yeah, a lot of antennas and and maybe weapons. It's hard to tell. Right. Pointy things sticking out the front. Yeah. So basically, a a round saucer type thing with you know lots of bumps and and things poking out with just two like movie era looking nacelles stuck to it. I, I yep. thought it was a really cool design. Yeah, I liked it. The fact that the nacelles were a lot closer to built into the fuselage, mm-hmm. although not 100% built in like the Defiant, reminded me a little bit of the Defiant. So there's a little bit Defiant-ish there, but not really, at least closer than a, than a normal full-size ship where the uh, nacelles are off on some long, impractical stalk. <laughs> um, and uh, I liked it. I thought it was very interesting. Good design. Yeah, I hated to see it blow up so fast. Yeah. <laughs> and it was basically in three panels, and then it's blown up. Right. It definitely looks about Millennium Falcon size, though. So, like, the amount of space for the cockpit and stuff looks... It looks like it might be a little bit smaller than the Millennium Falcon. But, um... Yeah. I thought not, it was quite a bit smaller. Not too smaller. far off. Well, quite a bit smaller? I don't think so. Well... Yeah, I guess so. Because when you, when you look at the, the cockpit sticking out of the side of the Millennium Falcon... Mm-hmm. You know, it isn't that much bigger. I, I don't think it's that much bigger. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, but the the cockpit is actually inside of the saucer section type thing, so I think that makes it smaller. But, I mean, I'm not going to split hairs about it. I get what you're saying. It definitely, I did get a Millennium Falcon feel when I saw it. Oh, and how interesting. I, I forgot about the back shot of it. Right. That you can see when they're surrounded by the alien ships. 
so right it's got like... it's got impulse engines in the back. Right. Okay. Cool. So on page five, when they're on the planet, I notice Ares. Is Ares the name of the planet? I, I didn't know. It just said Arian yeah, Ares. system. Right. Like that. Yeah. So Ares, you know, Greek god of war, kind of obvious when they named the planet that and the people that. But, <laughs> um, but I'm looking at the symbol they've got up on the on the big tote board on the big right uh, uh, on a building. There's like a symbol, and I guess it might be the symbol for the planet or something. And it's got it looks kind of like a uh, a multicolored like almost like a bear claw kind of thing with really long talons or something. Right. Um, that that symbol looks familiar to me somehow. It looks like a symbol in Star Wars. Oh, Star Wars. Okay. Or it could look like the Borg, the Borg symbol yeah, in Star Trek. Yeah, I was thinking right. It reminded me. You know, sometimes I see pictures of different like like badges. Right, right. That are like, you know, sometimes they're badges, sometimes they're just symbols. Because, of course, the Borgs don't wear badges. Uh, right. We don't need no stinking badges. But they're still like a Borg symbol that I've seen uh, in, in publications or whatever. It kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, the the Borg symbol that you're talking about um, originated in that uh, two-part episode where Hugh and Lore okay. had that little offshoot of the Borg. Oh, so where is that they where they were, got a symbol? Yeah, that symbol was there. Uh, to my knowledge, that's the only time we've actually seen that symbol Okay. In, in anything that actually was on film. Yeah, and that would make more sense because if you are a mindless board collective, you don't need a symbol. Nope. But if you are individuals that are working together with more self-determination than having more of a feeling of a, a group that could be brought about by a symbol might be more appropriate. Right. Hm. Okay. But as far as what that symbol means here, uh, yeah. I think it's their hand. The, the aliens have two two fingers and a thumb, and that's right. kind of representative of their hand. So it's kind of like a, a bloody And they have hand really print. long nails. Mm-hmm. And, and the stormtrooper guys, they, they wear that same symbol on their chest. So Right. So I'm thinking it's supposed to be like a bloody handprint type thing. Oh, it's supposed to be bloody? Yeah. Well, well it I is kind of like orange-red kind of color. Yeah. Right? To me, that's what it was supposed to be symbolizing. Like, that's right. the, there's, you know, like a warrior-type race blood. Right. I don't know. That's what I was getting. Cool. I like it. So what do you think that blue liquid that they, they threw in her face was to wake her up there on page 13? Well, you think water, but... but it but, is blue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's just where the the, the colorist like I mean, because these are so vibrant in color that it just really overshadows everything else. Because that it, it looks like paint. Yeah. However, you can see that it's clear or something because it doesn't stay on her person long. Right. Right. I mean, it's not like she's got paint for the rest of the issue. Nope. Yeah, the next time it shows her face, she's just wet, like like you know. You don't really even see very much blue on her at all. So yeah, I think it's supposed to be water, but it is a bright blue. It is. It's alien water. That's all. <laughs> it's Aryan water. Aresian water. Aresian water. Aresian. Yeah, Aresian. That's right. 
I didn't really buy that she wouldn't kill anybody. I mean, she's killed people before to get away or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys were going to kill her. She should yes. have been doing more than slapping them with a towel and ah! try to <laughs> shoot them in the arm. That was so funny. Yeah, it was. It was like she was in a, a uh, in a shower room or something. Swack. Yeah. What was she? She's a warrior. She she was part of the resistance. She's killed people a, a lot. lot before. And you know, if it's kill or be killed, I don't think Kira would be the one that would be hitting people on top of the head to knock them out. And right. Yeah, just seemed a little out of character for her. Yeah. Unless she's really trying to drive home that she's a pacifist all of a sudden, because that's what the prophets tell her. Well, yeah, but but like it, it like your average Federation citizen or Starfleet guy, they're the good guys. Sure. They they tend to not kill people if they can avoid it. Right, but if someone's shooting you, yeah, yeah. Plus these guys, these guys are really violent. I mean, they make it very clear, as you said, that they are very happy to kill her. Right. And it turns out they don't even have a stun setting on their weapons. Right. No so need I, for that. So I think she's justified to kill them if she if she needed to. to. If she show, if she so needed to, I right. agree. Well, Crockett has no problem with it. Nope. Shoot him in the chest. That's right. Put a hole through them. Nice big hole. All right. What else you got? Because I'm done. Um, I knew Crockett had a thing for Kira. Oh, I knew that. And if he was Starfleet, would he be making overtures to partnering? Well, if it gets him what he wants. I mean, I still right. don't know what he what wants. What he wants. And he is turning the thing back over pretty quickly. I mean, did he... Did he get his payment already? <laughs> so, oh, I got paid already, and they didn't ask for it yet. So, yeah, okay. If we got to go back. We can go back. Yeah, I did. Like I said, that whole part was so murky as to yeah. whether he already gave it to him and he's stolen it again, or he never gave it to him. Right. Yeah, I am kind of interested in the fact that they apparently they did not detect the defiant quickly enough when it came out of cloak. Because we assume that they got away clean. I mean, nobody followed them, nothing. So I just find it interesting that they were able to get away so quickly. They See, must I, have I, been in a hurry. I didn't realize that they were already gone. I, I, I kind of thought that the next issue was going to start with them trying to leave and those fighters there at the last panel attacking them. Yeah, and, and they don't show them leave. So you may right. be right in the end, but <clears throat> it seems like these guys are prepping for war. Right. More... More so than, hey, let's get those guys that are in orbit. Because you would think that these nutcases, I mean, they're they're so extremely violent and xenophobic and blah, 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 that uh, they'd have a pretty good sensor grid around their planet. Right. I mean, they, they detected Kira's approach pretty quickly. Right, right. So um, you could be right. You could be right. We could have an interesting pitched battle as they get out. Or right. it could turn out that these Aresians don't have cloaking technology and they don't know how to overcome it right yeah so I don't know I haven't read the next issue so I don't know how it starts off so right. I guess we'll find out in a couple of weeks right that's the last of my comments alright cool I'm looking All forward right. to how this battle turns out because this could be I mean these guys are pretty nasty so um, it could turn into an interesting battle 
Right. I do like the last little line there when it says to be continued. It mm -hmm. says... Let me get back there. Uh, it says something like... Oh, I closed it out. It says, next, Aresians and Cardassians. Diplomacy and disaster. In the extra length conclusion... Is that, right. that what you're saying? Yep, that's what it was. So okay. that that kind of made me think that maybe the Aresians and the Cardassians might be teaming up. Or, well, that would be interesting. Yeah. The only thing is that they are a Gamma Quadrant threat, but because they're in the end going after Bajor, that's why they would perhaps team up with them. Hmm. Right. That's possible. Well, Very possible. They they did team up with the Dominion pretty fast. After trying to attack them. Right. Which, so, yes. <clears throat> when we get into the expanded universe, we'll kind of delve with it. That is uh, a bit of a segue, isn't it? Right. All right, so uh, we'll do expanded universe then. We're talking about the last six episodes, I think, of season three. So the first one being The Die is Cast came out uh, May 1st, 1995. Uh, in this one, the Obsidian Order and the Tal Shiar, which is the Romulans, they plot a course to the Founders' homeworld to try to take them out. And I think this is the one where Garrick is forced to uh, torture Odo, or at least ordered to. Right. Interrogate Odo. Get his gets the secrets of the founders, or whatever Odo can possibly know about them, and uh, and torture is involved apparently. Right. So I don't remember the details, but is is this the one where part of the interrogation they're able to oh keep Odo from his bucket or something, and so he starts looking really nasty? Maybe is that part of it? It could be. It's been a long time since I watched season three. Right. Well, this was an interesting one. So, I don't remember. Was this so when when the Cardassians and Romulans did attack? That was the flashpoint to start the Dominion War, right? Uh, no, because season okay. four was all about Klingon Federation Romulan tension. So the Dominion War doesn't really pick back up until season five. Oh wow! Hmm. Okay. But I'm sure this was, you know, part of the catalyst towards it. <clears throat> oh yeah, well, I'm sure. I, I think in the end, the Dominion was planning on an attack all along, but this definitely gave them provocation. Exactly. Being attacked by the Alpha Quadrant. Exactly. Exactly. All right. The so one. the next next up, um, Explorers, where Jake and Cisco build a Bajoran lightship. So basically, it's like a sailboat in space, and they. Uh, Using solar sails. Right. Using the solar wind to push the ship. Yeah, I didn't really care for this one too terribly no. much. It was kind of boring. Yeah. I mean, it was a good father-son thing. And then, you know, I think this is the one where Jake realizes he's definitely not going to go to Starfleet. And that he's going to uh, just be a writer. Right. Uh, oh, that one? Was that this one? I think so. Okay. I think so. Well, I thought it was very interesting. I know that there... I don't know whether it was this exact time period or maybe a little bit later, but I know that there was increased interest in solar propulsion mm -hmm. for spacecraft. I mean, in the real world. 
Right. So um, actually seeing it in action in an ancient spacecraft from Bajor I thought was very interesting. Right. Now that was interesting. Although in the end the story wasn't that compelling. Right. Because don't they find out that there was an ancient Bajoran cell ship that went through the wormhole or I'm a little murky on on some of the the plot details it's been a while like I said yeah but um, anyways it was a good episode I thought yeah well what I recall what I recall yeah. all right next up um, also in May was family business this is the uh, first one with Mugi Rom and Cork's mother my god she was wearing clothes Right, so not only was she wearing clothes, breaking Ferengi tradition, but she's actually making profits. Oh, that's worse. You do not make profits if you're a female. No. <laughs> so, so a Ferengi feminist, Moogie. Yeah, I always liked Moogie. Yeah. It, it's kind of funny, um, and this is a little off subject, but when... Um, you know, one of the benefits of when you have the first kid in your family, or you know, like your brothers and sisters, you're the first one. Yeah. Uh, unless your your mother is really opposed to it, you get to name your grandparents. You know, so are they going to call them grandma and grandpa? Or are they going to call them, you know, peepa or whatever? You know, mm-hmm. you, you, the first kid kind of gets the first kid kind of gets to set the the tone, right? So. Uh, on my wife's side, we were the first one in her family to have a kid. So it was her mom's first grandchild. And so we we're driving in the car trying to think of what we were going to have them call her. And then I was like, let's, let's call her Moogie. Oh, God. <laughs> and immediately my brother-in-law and uh, my brother-in-law's uh, fiancé at the time, they were both, yes, that's what we're going to call her. <laughs> And uh, okay, this... so they're so they're they're geeks too. Okay, right? Because cool. my uh, you know she was just my my brother in law's fiance at the time, but she pulled out her phone and she was like, "Look what I have on my phone." She pulled up her contacts and in her contacts she had a contact for Moogie, and that was her mom. <laughs> and I was like, so to this day, you know, seven years later, my kids call my uh, their maternal grandmother Moogie. Okay. Pretty which, awesome, right? Which is, which is awesome and stuff, but that's that's not mother. That's grandmother, though. True, true. In your usage, that's fine. That's cool. We're we're uh, taking liberties with the Ferengi language. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, cute. Growing right, up, so. growing up geek. <laughs> Love it. I was just happy to see that we weren't the only ones that came up with it. That she. She already had it on her cell phone before I suggested it. <laughs> Along with her uh, Deep Space Nine wall uh, wallpaper on her phone. Okay. Uh, she did not, but I see where you're going with it. Yes. All right, the next one is entitled Shakar. And this is where Kai Wynn becomes Bajor's leader after the First Minister dies. Um it's all Bajoran politics, blah, blah, blah. You know, to some degree, you know, at the beginning when they first started talking about the Bajoran intrigues and stuff, and they started going on to some of those those storylines on Deep Space Nine, 
Right. It was interesting. It was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And then I was starting to get bored with it. Right. As they kept on having more and more episodes focused on that. So I was like, can we get back to the space station? Thanks. Right, and and I didn't really like that Kira seemed to be romantically involved with with every every leader, male right? Vedic. Right, because this was when Burrell died, and she was she was with Burrell for a while. I thought, yeah. So you know, I was kind of happy that Kai Wen became a uh, leader because she was just so evil <laughs> 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 that uh, you knew that Kira and and Kai Wen were never going to get together. yeah yes but I really liked you know Louise Fletcher's character because she was nasty she was venomous one of those people in power that likes to uh, do whatever necessary to get power and keep power right one of those uh, what aggressive passive kind of things um yeah at least what? definitely be, before she was uh, the Kai. Right, right, right. Then when she was the Kai, she could be aggressive. Didn't need passive anymore. Yeah, but she still had to pretend like she was always, you know, I was always doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. And I right. thought she played it off really well. Yeah. All right, so the next one is um, Facets, where Jadzia talks to her former hosts. Of the Dax symbiote. Remember this one? I don't. I do not remember this at all. So they're all dead, though. The the, the old hosts are dead, obviously. So right. this is going on in her head. Well, I think they do it through the holodeck, but yeah, it's oh, it's, it's a somehow she's able to visit them, kind of thing. Well, Actually, maybe it was. Uh, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, because I think that was in one of the. Um, Ezra Dax ones where she actually got to see them but this one it might have been like uh, like different people that she knew took on the host or that host personality so I think like you know Avery Brooks was playing one of them and uh, somebody else was playing Curzon and, and things like that so I think it actually took over somebody else's body and she interacted with you know that her friend she was interacting with her friend, but her friend was not acting like... He wasn't acting like Cisco. He was acting like one of the Daxes. Okay. Well, this sounds like a very interesting story. It just sounds like I don't know how that happened. Because uh, the hosts are dead. So magic. so is this like uh, Superman's father coming back out of a uh, that black crystal thing uh, on the new Superman movie? I don't know. What is that what we're talking about? Uh, no, I think it was actually kind of like maybe a possession type thing where the so memories of that person. The, the, yeah, it was Cisco. Like somehow well, Cisco's well, know, body was overtaken by by a, the host who's dead. But the memories are in the symbiote. Huh. Okay. Cool. That's what <laughs> the great thing about Star Trek is how you can explore all these possibilities, no matter how ridiculous some of them may be. Right. You can just do whatever you want to. Yeah. It's like episodes where characters change place, change bodies, you know. Yeah. So this was kind of like that. Yeah. Just even more ridiculous than those. (laughs) 
because even even if the symbiote has memories of their former hosts, are they that good that they can actually be transferred to another being complete enough that their personalities would be there, that they would react as the hosts did when they were alive? It's like, right. uh, okay, you're, you're asking me to swallow a lot, but okay, fine. <laughs> All right, and the last one of the season, season three, ended with the adversary. This is where Cisco finally gets his promotion to captain. He great. Yeah, a whole year overdue because as soon as he got the defiant, he should have been captain, but they waited a year. <laughs> he had to earn it, damn it. <laughs> um, and I don't know this for a fact, but I think this was supposed to be the catalyst to start the Dominion War because it ends with a confrontation between Odo and the woman changeling. But for whatever reason, and and my theory is, is that ratings, they wanted to get Worf on the show and they wanted to have an excuse to get him on the show to get people to start watching it. Right. That uh, they kind of sidetracked the Dominion War for a year and added the the Klingons now hate the, the Federation season, which is season four. But right. So this one kind of has the setup for the Dominion War, even though it doesn't really take fruit for about a year. Right. So uh, I don't really remember the specifics of uh, what was going on, or even if it ended on a cliffhanger. <sighs> Well, that was the last episode before the summer break. Right, right. Yep, and the next episode is The Way of the Warrior. Yes. So, anyways, all right, well, we've kept everybody, I think, oh, long enough. I think so, too. So, So, uh, next week, we will be back, and we're doing, ah, we're doing annuals, annual number five of both original series and Next Generation. Excellent. Are you excited? I am. I knew you would. I, uh, I, I, those franchises I love. Characters I love. And big old meaty annuals. And unfortunately, this will be the last of the DC annuals for both of those series. Arg! All good things. Getting towards the end. All good things. Right. All right. Well, take care, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. See you next time on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name book review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here